take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to the book of Matthew. Matthew chapter 2. If you're new to the things of the Bible, Matthew is the first book of the New Testament. Matthew chapter 2. Hear now the Word of the living God. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod, the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod, the king, heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. This is the word of the living God, and we say, thanks be to God. Amen. Please be seated. Let's pray together. And now, O Lord, we pray that the voice of the living Christ would be made known among us, that in this brief time, his sheep might recognize his voice, that by your spirit, you would cause our hearts to rise That you would comfort us and convict us, teach us and edify us, we ask. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The entire Bible merges in Matthew chapter 2. Here's what I mean. The entirety of the Bible, in one way or another, it seems comes together in passages like Matthew chapter 2. For as we'll see briefly this Lord's Day morning, themes which have been swirling since the very first word of Genesis chapter 1 occur in this passage. Themes like the seed that has been promised. Prophetic words of various prophets being fulfilled. Gentiles, non-Hebrews, being brought in to the church. God saving a people through Exodus. The direction of the curse. The direction where God cast human beings after the fall. The east is the very direction that we see now seeking the living God. The entirety of the Bible merges like various roads on a highway in Matthew chapter 2. I want us to walk briefly this morning through Matthew chapter 2, and we'll do this in three parts. Three parts, and as we walk through it, let us be praying together that as we see these three parts, the living God would change our hearts. The first part that we'll see this morning is how Matthew chapter 2 speaks to prophecies fulfilled. Prophecies fulfilled. As we'll see in just a moment, if you just read these 23 verses over and over and over again, Matthew says, as the prophets said, as the prophets said, as the prophets said, prophecies fulfilled. Now, for those of you that are longtime students of the Bible, you will know that there are four Gospels. And there are various theories on the order of these Gospels. Most Bible-believing Christians understand rightly that the Holy Spirit inspired all four of them. But in these theories of the Gospels, there are questions like, 
Why the different stories? Why the different details? Many people argue, and one of the latest to do so is a man by the name of David Allen Black, that Matthew was actually the first gospel written. I know modern scholars don't necessarily want to argue in that same way. But the older view is that Matthew was really the first gospel written and that it was written first because it was written largely to a church of Jews, of Hebrews, in those first few decades when the gospel was moving forward and the large number of believers were Hebrews. Believers in the old covenant promises and prophetic words. And so it shouldn't surprise us then, in keeping with this older understanding of the Gospel of Matthew, that from the very beginning of this book, the Old Testament is brought to life page by page, and Jesus is seen at every turn. Just look at the first chapter. How does it open? With all of the names, all of the names of Jesus' lineage. Chapter 2, we see all of the prophets speaking to Christ. Imagine in those first few decades of the church after Jesus' ascension, the Hebrews seeing the Old Testament coming to life in the face of Jesus Christ. Well, let's look at prophecies fulfilled. Prophecies of the Old Testament. Notice the various connections. We read this morning that when Herod, the king, heard the news of the wise men, he was troubled in all Jerusalem with him. Look at verse 4. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And where did they go? They go to the Bible. Look at verse 5. So they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet, But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not the least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. This is a direct quote from the Old Testament prophet Micah. Micah 5, verse 2. Now let me just stop here for one moment. Maybe you're here today because someone invited you to church. It's Christmas after all. And maybe after this service you'll go do other kinds of Christmas things. But you're here because someone invited you. One of the things that I want you to understand is that long before Christ was born, even the very place where he would be born was prophesied hundreds of years prior to his birth. So the rulers go to the prophets. Herod, if you want to know where he's going to be born, we'll open our Bibles. Micah 5 in Bethlehem. The text continues in verse 7. Then Herod, when he had secretly called the wise men, determined from them what time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the young child. And when you have found him, bring back word to me that I may come and worship him also. When they heard the king, they departed. And behold, the star which they had seen in the east went before them till it came and stood over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. We'll come back to this, but notice how the pagan Gentiles of the East responded to the Christ child versus the somewhat Hebrew king. Verse 11, and when they had come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary, his mother, and fell down and worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented gifts to him, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. 
Then being divinely warned in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed for their own country another way. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother, flee to Egypt, and stay there until I bring you word. For Herod will seek the young child to destroy him. When he arose, he took the young child and his mother by night and departed for Egypt, and was there until the death of Herod, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Out of Egypt... I have called my son. Another prophetic word fulfilled. This one from the Old Testament prophet of Hosea. Hosea chapter 11, verse 1. Out of Egypt I have called my son. We'll look at this in greater detail, but just for the moment. That original prophecy was a word about God bringing Israel out of Egypt through the Exodus. But here... A greater fulfillment is seen as Jesus, the true son, the true Israel, is called out of Egypt. Where will he be born? Well, let's go to the Bible, Bethlehem. What will happen to him? Well, he will be sent to Egypt and brought back. Let's go to the Bible and see it fulfilled. Prophecies are fulfilled as we see all of the roads of Scripture merging in Matthew chapter 2. But the text continues, doesn't it? Verse 16, then Herod, when he saw that he was deceived by the wise men, was exceedingly angry. And he sent forth and put to death all the male children who were in Bethlehem and in all its districts from two years old and under, according to the time which he had determined from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet, saying, A voice was heard in Ramah, lamentation, weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted because they are no more. Another prophetic word, Matthew says, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, another prophetic word is fulfilled. Here, the quote is from Jeremiah 31, verse 15. And this original quote in Jeremiah's time was a picture of weeping, As the people of God, the people of Israel, were headed off into exile. Ramah was the place where the Babylonians took the Jews to begin their long journey to Babylon. You can read of that in Jeremiah 40, verse 1. But now, an even further and greater fulfillment of this prophetic word happens. What is the weeping now among Rachel? What is the voice that is heard in Ramah? It's not the weeping of God's people being carried off into Babylon. But of the voices of mothers and fathers as their two and one and infant year old sons are slaughtered by a wicked king. Verse 19. Now when Herod was dead... Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph, saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the young child's life are dead. Then he arose, took the young child and his mother, and came into the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea instead of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned by God in a dream, he turned aside into the region of Galilee, 
And he came and dwelt in a city called Nazareth, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophets. He shall be called a Nazarene. Again, a fulfillment of the prophets. Micah, where is he born? Hosea, Exodus, Jeremiah, weeping. This very name, Nazarene, the text says, is fulfilled by the prophets. In Matthew chapter 2, the entirety of the Bible comes together. And the first thing that we see is that prophecy by prophecy by prophecy is fulfilled in the birth and circumstances surrounding the birth of Christ. Prophecies fulfilled. But the second thing that I want us to see this morning as we walk through Matthew chapter 2 is shadows clarified. Shadows clarified. You know, if you're new to the things of the Bible, one image that I might leave you with this morning is that the Bible really could be read in this way. Shadows and fulfillment or shadows and substance. Shadows and substance. That in the Old Testament, the living God knew all along that he was going to be sending the Christ. And so the Old Testament is full of various shadows Boys and girls, what happens when you're playing hide-and-seek in the middle of the day? It's harder to hide, isn't it? But maybe you've been playing hide-and-seek in the, the middle of the day, and you know where one of your friends is because you see his or her shadow. You're hiding behind a tree or a corner, and you see the shadow of where he or she is. You don't see him or her yet, but you see the shadow. And then maybe... You look slightly differently and you see his shadow in a a slightly different way. And every which way you look, you see that shadow and it's getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And you say to yourself, I know where he is and I'm going to tag him. I'm going to tag her. That's a little bit like what the Old Testament is like. Shadows that get bigger in various ways from various angles until... In full, plain view, Christ comes on to the scene. Let me give you some of those shadows that show up in Matthew chapter 2. The first occurs in the very first verse of Matthew chapter 2, and that is the word east. East. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men came from the east to Jerusalem. Now, you might be thinking to yourself, isn't that just a simple detail? Does it really matter which way they came from? Well, it wouldn't matter, except all throughout the Old Testament, the East has shown up time and time again. Let me give you some examples. Which way were Adam and Eve sent when they were expelled from the Garden of Eden? To the East. The Garden is planted in the East of Eden. From which direction were the cherubim stationed in the Garden of Eden, saying, you shall not enter again into this garden, for you are sinful. The cherubim were stationed on the east side. Abraham and Lot move in different directions as the promise of the Messiah was carried about through them. And Lot departs from Abraham and he goes to the east. Already in the first 13 chapters of the Bible, the east is the direction of the curse. 
the children of Abraham's concubines are sent away, and they are sent, Genesis 25, verse 6, to the east. Reuben, Gad, and half the tribe of Manasseh choose to dwell outside and to the east of the land of Israel, Deuteronomy 29, 8. Over and over and over, this direction shows up in the first five books of the Bible as the direction of curse or lack of blessing. However, as the Lord God gives more shadows to his people in anticipation of the substance, the Son of God to come, born of a virgin, born under the law that he might redeem those under the law, the East takes on a new dimension. The tabernacle, boys and girls, that tent that was set up before there was a temple, the place where God's covenant people would meet with God. The very door of that tabernacle faced east. In Ezekiel's grand vision of God's glory coming and entering the temple, it comes from the east. The same temple faces east with a river flowing east from it in this great vision. I think you're getting the idea. The direction of the east was the direction of curse. Humanity sent to the east away from God's presence with the promise that one day God would bring in, gather people even from the east. Now, we're not meant to think geographically today in 2022 that east is bad and west is good. That's not at all what we're meant to see. But there's a shadow here. I send you sinners away to a land of curse, but one day... You will come from that land and you will seek me and you will find me. For I'm Emmanuel, God with you. The East. Interestingly enough, as year after year, the people of God would sacrifice on the Day of Atonement. Leviticus 16.14 reminds us that blood would be sprinkled on the altar And from which side would the priest stand and sprinkle that blood? The east. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he? That's a shadow that's clarified. But, you know, before we leave this particular shadow of the east, we will remember as we as a church journeyed through the book of Daniel. A very important passage in Daniel chapter 11, verse 44. You remember there that we understood one of those final kings in Daniel's prophetic vision to be Herod, this Herod. Those of you who walked through that series will remember that from Daniel's time up until the time of Christ, visions were given. And over and over and over, Daniel saw in large ways and in small ways God's work. Daniel, the people will return. The temple will be rebuilt. God would come, Daniel, to Jerusalem. Well, Daniel chapter 11, verse 44 says that a king, he's not called Herod there in Daniel, but... 
I believe him very much to be King Herod. This King Herod, Daniel 11:44 says that he will receive troubling news from two directions. One of those directions is the east. The troubling news coming from a different direction is that some of his sons will conspire against him. And that's actually what happened. News came to Herod's ears. Your sons are conspiring against you. So he did what Herod often did. He killed them. But he also received troubling news from the east. And our text in Matthew 2 reveals again what that is. What's the troubling news to Herod who doesn't have a heart to believe in the Son of God? There is a true king and you're not it. So as our text tells us, and as Daniel 11 tells us, he responds in great fury and anger. If you turn over to Daniel chapter 11, you'll read these words. That long chapter of all kinds of kings between the time of Daniel and the birth of Christ. But news, Daniel 11:44, from the east and from the north shall trouble him, and therefore he shall go out with great fury. What will he do? To destroy and annihilate many. I would argue that this is another way in which prophetic word of the Old Testament is fulfilled in the birth of Christ. Even the destruction of all of these male children. News from the east troubles him. Interestingly enough, have we ever seen a leader want to wipe out many of God's children before? We have in the Bible. It happens in Exodus chapter 1, verse 22, with Pharaoh. Shadow upon shadow coming into full view. But there's a second Shadow that is clarified in Matthew chapter 2, and that is Gentiles being brought in. You remember God gave promises to Abraham and said to him, I'm going to make you the father of many nations. Let me give you one example. Genesis 22 and verse 18. There we read this. God speaking to Abraham in your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Or how about Zechariah? Zechariah chapter 8 and verse 23. Thus says the Lord of hosts in those days, ten men from every language of the nations shall grasp the sleeve of a Jewish man saying, let us go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. Promise after promise after promise in the Old Testament is that Gentiles, the nations, will be brought in to what God has promised to the Jews. Isaiah 60, verse 3 is another example. Shadows of the Old Testament are clarified as we see the birth of Christ in Matthew chapter 2. Another shadow that we see is Jesus as Israel. Now, you might be thinking, Jesus as Israel. Some of you will know what I mean. Others of you might be thinking, well, isn't Israel a land in the Middle East? But just... Stick with me for one moment. Who was Israel? Well, 
Let's ask the Bible. Exodus chapter 4, verse 22. Exodus chapter 4, verse 22. There we read these words. Moses, speaking to the face of Pharaoh, Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my son, my firstborn. So I say to you, let my son go. All throughout the Old Testament, in various ways, Israel, the old covenant people of God as a nation, are referred to as God's son. So what is the history of Israel or God's son? Well, they are called out of Egypt as other infants die. They're brought through the waters of the Red Sea or the waters of baptism. And where do they go after they're brought through the waters of the Red Sea? Well, eventually they go into the wilderness where they are tempted and they fail. Now, pause right there and let's just zoom out and see Jesus As God's son for this very text says out of Egypt, I have called my son. What's the story of Jesus? The substance? Well, he is called out of Egypt while other infants die. He is brought through the waters of baptism. Look at the very next few chapters in chapter three. Jesus is baptized in the Jordan River by John. And then where does he go after this journey through water? Well, he goes into the wilderness in chapter 4 of Matthew. And what happens in chapter 4 of Matthew? He is tempted for 40 days. Not 40 years. 40 days. And he doesn't fail. Jesus as Israel. The true and ultimate Israel, the true and ultimate son. This is a shadow that is clarified in Matthew chapter two. In fact, we read as much in verse 15, don't we, where Jesus makes an exodus, it says, out of Egypt. Shadows clarified and prophecies fulfilled. All of the roads of the Bible seem to merge together At the birth of the Son of God. Well, let's look at our text in one final way, and that is lessons received. Lessons received. What do we learn from such a journey in these 23 verses this morning? I would submit to you there are many. Let me just give you four lessons received. Lessons to walk out the door with this day and say, the prophetic word of the Old Testament has been fulfilled in the birth of the Son of God. The shadows of the Old Testament have come into full view as the substance is in front of me now. Full clarity in the face of Jesus Christ. What do I do with this? Well, four lessons. Number one, the Lord will complete his plan of salvation. The Lord will complete his plan of salvation. Listen, from the very first few pages of the Bible after the fall of man into sin, there has been a promise that the skull-crushing seed of the woman will come. 
And that promise, even though it may seem to take a variety of turns on the road to fulfillment, is fulfilled. The seed of the woman who will crush the head of the serpent has come. And even in the circumstances surrounding his birth, when the leader of Jerusalem wants to stamp him out, he fails. Because God's promise to complete his plan of salvation will not be hindered. That is a universal promise to all of God's people. I will complete the promise. So what is the benediction in Romans chapter 16 verse 20? The living God will soon do what, believers? Crush Satan under your feet. The promise to the church of God, to the Israel of God, is that he will complete his salvation. But you know, God in his kindness has given you that individual promise. Philippians 1, 6. God will complete that work which he began in you. Listen, if the swords of Herod's men couldn't stamp out Christ that day, there is no sword that will keep Christ's work in saving you from being accomplished. But even in these details, we don't want to read too much into them. Sinclair Ferguson in his book on the Advent actually mentions his belief that even the very gifts that were given, gold, frankincense, and myrrh, would have been things that Mary and Joseph would have been able to use to pay for their several-year journey in Egypt. God providing for Christ all along. Listen to what John Calvin said about this particular text. Quote, We must always bear in mind the purpose of God in training His Son from the commencement under the discipline of the cross. Because this was the way in which he was to redeem his church. He bore our infirmities and was exposed to dangers and to fears that he might deliver his church from them by his divine power and might bestow upon it everlasting peace. His danger was our safety. His fear was our confidence. Not that he ever in this life felt alarm, but as he was surrounded on every hand by the fear of Joseph and Mary, he may be justly said to have taken upon him our fears that he might procure for us assured confidence. End quote. One of the lessons of Matthew chapter 2 is that the swords of the governments of this world will not stop God's plan of salvation. Perhaps like Mary and Joseph, there are days where you feel like you are carrying the precious Christ around with you and the swords of this world are coming hard after you. Take comfort, believer. Take hope, believer. No government sword, no demonic sword will ever stamp out the Christ that is in you. The Lord will complete his plan of salvation. But number two, a lesson received is this, and it's related. Satan and his seed can never conquer Christ and his seed. Very much like point number one, but with a view towards the spiritual realm. Satan and his seed can never conquer Christ and his seed. Let's walk through the Bible again. 
Genesis 3.15, God speaks to the very face of Satan and says this. There is going to come a seed, Satan. You will bruise his heel, but he will crush your head. That promise is carried all throughout the Old Testament. Jesus is the seed that has been promised. But all along the way, Satan, without full knowledge, because he doesn't know everything like God does, boys and girls. He knows more than you and me, but he doesn't know everything. He's a creature. Satan, all along the way, has been trying to stamp out the seed and the hope of the seed and the people of the seed. How do we see that? Well, Pharaoh in Exodus 1.22, what does he try to do? Wipe out the Jewish children. We see that in Matthew chapter 2. Satan, I believe, very much rearing his ugly head. Oh, he's come. Wise men from the east. Satan knows the Bible. I will, I will destroy him. If you for one instant think that Herod acted alone in this story, you're mistaken. Satan in the spiritual realm and Herod here in the physical earthly realm were trying for very different reasons to stamp out the seed and they failed. But how does the book of the Revelation picture the entire Bible? We won't turn there, but if you read Revelation 12, you will see a picture of a woman, a child, and you will see one other character. Let me read just a section of Scripture. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great fiery red dragon having seven heads and ten horns and seven diadems on his head. His tail drew a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was ready to give birth to devour her child as soon as it was born. She bore a male child who was to rule all nations with the rod of iron. And her child was caught up to God in his throne. Then the woman fled into the wilderness. She has a place prepared by God that they should feed her there 1,260 days. Revelation, a book full of pictures, pictures the church being the place where this promised seed would be known from whom he would come. And this ancient dragon is trying to do what to the child, and to the woman, the church, the people of God stamp them out. I'm here to tell you today, beloved, that not only will no earthly government ever be able to stamp out the Christ who is within you, Satan himself, although he may try, will fail. A third lesson received, and that is this. Hopefully you've seen this morning this lesson, and that is that Christ is the centerpiece of Scripture. Listen, when you read your Bible, perhaps some of you are thinking already, you know, I, I want to read through the Bible in 2023 if the Lord gives me life. Or I want to read this section of the Bible more deeply. As you read the Scriptures, read it the way one ought to read a chapter like Matthew chapter 2. Jesus is everywhere. 
Now, you won't see his name all throughout every book or page of the Bible, but he is always the scope of Scripture. It either points to his coming, it points to the fact that he has come, it gives a shadow of him that is the substance, it it gives you pictures that reveal to you your need for him. Every single page of the Bible has the fingerprints of the living Christ all over it. And just like we've seen in Matthew chapter 2, all of the roads of the Bible merge together in the on-ramp of the birth of the Son of God. Read your Bible that way. Don't say, does the book of Proverbs, the book of Psalms, the book of Deuteronomy, does it tell me how to be a better person? No, in one way or another, it says that you're a sinner and that you need Christ and that he is the one who is the pinnacle and chief example of perfect morality. And so you you see in other parts of Scripture that Jesus died for sinners, but that he lived a perfect life. And you, you put these pieces together and you realize that Christ is the one offered to you in the pages of Scripture as a complete record of righteousness to be received by faith. And that he is the one who died all of the shadows of the Old Testament, priests, and sacrifices, and blood, and curse, and temple. It's all over the death of Christ. And when he died on the cross some 2,000 years ago, friend, he took on to himself the record of all the people who would ever trust in him. And he died the death that they deserved. So as you read your Bible, see that the centerpiece of Scripture is God offering Christ to you. Christ is the centerpiece of Scripture. And before we look at our last point, the main message of Scripture is not be a better person. The main message of Scripture, perhaps Christmas Day is one of the best days to say this. The the main message of Scripture is not be religious. The message of Scripture is that Adam failed and that God's first son, Israel, carrying the promise, failed. But that God's true son, Jesus, succeeded and he is offered to any to be received by faith. Resting completely in Him for all of your righteousness. When you see your many sins, leaning on Him and His blood which was spilt out for you. You know what the book of Hebrews says Jesus bled for? To perfect forever believers. He's the centerpiece of Scripture. Well, the last lesson received is this. Christ will be rejected by some and received by others. How do we see that in Matthew 2? Well, just compare Joseph and the wise men, a Jew, and some Gentiles from the east with King Herod. A question as you consider this, what kingdom are you holding on to? Herod very much rejected Christ because of his own kingdom. However, Joseph believed the word of God given through angels. These wise men, Gentiles from the east, the location in the Bible of curse, believed very much that God had given them the call to worship. But Herod, upon receiving this news, would rather have held on to his own kingdom. The ancient church father Augustine says this in one of his sermons on this passage. Quote, if his birth 
as an infant makes proud kings tremble? What will his tribunal as a judge do? Let princes fear him sitting at the right hand of his father, whom this impious king feared while he hanged yet on his mother's breast. End quote. Will you bow the knee? Not to your own morality or to a religious observance? To some self-esteem through being a better religious person? No, 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 no. Will you see that God has sent his son to save sinners? Just before our passage, we read these words. Now the birth of Jesus was as follows. After his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not wanting to make her a public example, was minded to put her away secretly. But while he thought about these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And she will bring forth a son and you shall call his name Jesus. For he will save his people from their sins. No angels in the sky in this room today, friend. But very much the same message proclaimed by angels and prophets. Jesus has been sent and offered to you and to me as the one who will save his people from their sins. Let's pray. Living God, help us this Lord's Day, this Christmas Day, to see not only the manger, but the perfect record of the Son, the cross, the resurrection, the ascension, that He, the true Son, is offered as light and life to men and to women. Help us with the arms of faith, to cling to Him alone, forsaking our works and our religious deeds, forsaking our sins, repenting of them and turning to Him, and completely throwing ourselves onto the mercy of the babe of the infant manger, the Lord of the cross, the Christ of the empty tomb, and the King of kings who sits at your right hand. Help us, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen.